Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. I'm going to run solo for a brief news segment today. Then we're going to, uh, after the break, cut over to an academic lecture essentially, about eating disorders. Uh, Then I check in with Phil, who's on the road, to discuss how these might apply specifically to powerlifting, uh, obviously bodybuilding, I suppose, with all the dieting involved and whatnot, and physique and figure, uh, and strength sports in general. So let's start with, quickly, uh, mail and news. Uh, I just wanted to mention something from Neil, uh, wrote in, and he said... uh, Hey guys, still glad to see the weekly episodes coming. Big thanks to the team for all the hard work and dedication. Still happy to be a supporting member going on four plus years now. Uh, I thought I'd pitch an episode idea your way, uh, if you guys would like to use it. Some of the best episodes have been the tongue-in-cheek episodes, so a Mythbusters episode would be fun. Uh, Everyone from around the table can offer some myths and beliefs from around the fitness industry, um, and then through your comments, obviously, dig into it. Uh, either confirm the myth or bust it. Uh, For example, uh, the anabolic window post-workout for eating that. Is uh, is that a myth? Is it confirmed? Uh, Does cardio destroy gains? Uh, Kids under 16 should not lift? Uh, Anyway, so I'm tossing this out now because over this week and next, let's get some feedback. Uh, on Facebook, from around the web, you can email us at ironradio.org. Offer a myth, and then we will talk about it. We can either do it tongue-in-cheek, uh, like Neil is suggesting, as if it were real. We've done some silly episodes in the past talking about things like, for example, um, how to get fat. <laughs> was an episode, I think. Uh, how to open a failing gym, I think, was one. So maybe we'll take that approach to it, the tongue-in-cheek We have done a myth-busting episode in the past. After 10 years, we've covered almost everything. But, of course, times change, right? Uh, Attitudes change. News and information changes. So I thought that was a good idea, Neil. We will uh, take a look at this. I've already asked Phil and Mike to think about some myths that they might want to do. And especially with the tongue-in-cheek way, maybe we'll do it as if we're promoting it. Um. So if you do post something on Facebook or send us an email on at ironradio.org, uh, keep that in mind. 
that you would be posing it as as if it were real, right? So, uh, for example, you might say, when you stop lifting, muscle turns to fat, right? And then that's uh, obviously a myth, and then we can sort of bust it. Uh, or we can roll with it and laugh, right? Giving sort of the inverse advice. Anyway, thanks, Neil, for the email. I have two little bits of news blurbs here from uh, Food Technology Magazine slash Journal. It's sort of a, a hybrid lay scientific magazine and journal. Strength and Muscle Sport News. So this first bit uh, of news with a little bit of input and discussion for myself, I guess. Uh, again, from a Food Technology Magazine, it looks like these news bits were compiled by Margaret uh, Malikleb. M-A-L-O-C-H-L-E-B, Malikleb. Three trends shaping food and beverage. So it talks about new research from Mintel revealed three key trends that will shape the global uh, food markets, essentially. The first one, change incorporated. Over the coming years, consumers are going to be looking for things that affect the environment, uh, you know, or don't affect the environment. So environmental issues, ethical business models, things like that. Uh, and some of this stuff has been predicted by, it looks like, uh, Alex Beckett, Associate Director of Mintel Food and Drink. Expect to see consumers further prioritize plants in their diet, I think with the idea, with the planet's health in mind. Um, now, sometimes I wonder about that because I've seen good data that suggested that uh, veganism itself is probably not the best use of global land. Uh, sometimes a combination of uh, ranching or other types of livestock use and and um, regular crop rotations might be actually better. But it, you know, consumers believe that. Uh, other examples they share here would be beer made from rejected cereal pieces, uh, containers, food containers made from mushroom waste. So you get the idea. Consumers will be looking for change and things that are more sustainable. People are worrying a little bit more uh, about the future of the planet, and that affects food as well. The next one is smart diets, and this is referring to hyper-individualized approaches to physical and mental health. Uh, this isn't just the sort of, you know, send in the spit sample to 23andMe and that sort of thing. But it's along those lines. So using artificial intelligence-enabled apps, a lot of the apps on your cell phone or tablet or device, of course, have a little bit of AI built in, predicting what you want and, and synthesizing things in a way that you, maybe you take for granted. But artificial intelligence apps coupled with an increase in personal data collection. So I remember a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was on Science Friday, there was an episode called The Quantified Self. And how you've got devices measuring heart rate, uh, heart rate variability, right, which a lot of people are interested in. Dr. Nelson's all about that. I do some research with that myself. Um, eventually, continuous glucose monitoring, like a lot of diabetics uh, enjoy right now. I'm waiting for those watches to do CGM, continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, but anyway, all of these data basically being put together in uh, logical ways by the artificial intelligence in your cell phone. So then it can actually maybe say, don't go too intense in the gym today, or you might want to take it a little bit lower carb, or whatever the suggestions might be. So uh, I believe that's true. The smart dieting, 
and all of the data sampling that's happening on people these days. You know, there are sleep apps about how restless you are because there's an accelerometer in your phone or even something you might wear on your head and get sort of EEG readings while you sleep. And uh, Mike and I had a device years ago called the Zio. I wish that company was still around. I don't think they are, but that was very cool. It could tell you how much REM sleep and deep sleep, but you get the idea. All this stuff is going to add to what we know about ourselves. It could affect um, the, the title here, Smart Diets. And the last of the three trends shaping food and beverage, uh, high-tech harvests. Uh, expect to see brands use science and technology to cre- create new products. So I've been watching some videos, for example, about vertical farming, uh, you, how you can have the perfect wavelength of light and amount of moisture and nutrients in the nutrient broth that the roots are in, and the Instead of just doing everything flat like a crop, they're taking advantage of the idea that you can do this in layers. So there's these warehouses and vertical farming. Uh, Some of you probably know more about that than I do, but I think that's fascinating. Or just like creating entirely new things. Some of you remember, uh, and it hasn't gone away, uh, I got a, a provisional patent on specialized coffee filters, these nutrient infused coffee filters. So you get the nutrients in your coffee, uh, specifically designed to actually work with the caffeine that's in the coffee. Uh, So interesting uh, stuff there. Anyway, yeah, the creation of new products, just using innovation and uh, tech and science. Uh, And then uh, always, they say, championing the people behind the food, whether the food is grown in a laboratory or in a field. So, of course, lab-grown meats, all that sort of stuff. We can't forget there are people uh, behind these technologies. It's not bad because it's synthetic, and it's not good because it's quote-unquote natural. We have to be cautious with that kind of thing. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, thank you, Margaret, for the three trends uh, shaping food and beverage. And the other one that caught my eye here, we're sort of curating this content, but uh, clearing up the clean label confusion. So this is very brief. I just wanted to toss this out because I I thought it was interesting. There's little consensus about the definition of clean label. So listeners, you might be familiar with this idea that try to have five or fewer ingredients, all of which you can pronounce, right, and that sort of thing. Um, Selected ingredient swaps. So what might you see on food labels to make them quote-unquote cleaner? Um, So the original ingredient would being flour, what, what, what might we swap in for that? So flour, it's obviously it's the main ingredient in a lot of baked goods. It provides texture. So they were suggesting nut and seed flours would be a replacement for wheat flour in everything. A lot of people are paranoid about gluten, some of, some of which I think is unnecessary. But you get the idea. If you want lower carb or whatever it is, nut and seed flours replacing wheat flour. Uh, A typical ingredient that we see now in many foods would be dyes and colors, and those are often being replaced by fruit and vegetable powder extracts. Uh, You might see something like uh, beets making something purplish or turmeric making something yellow. I much rather do that because those have healthful antioxidant, you know, they're phytochemicals. They're going to have benefits to your body, carrots for the orangeness, uh, instead of, you know, yellow number this and blue number that and all the sort of synthetic stuff. Uh, again, just because it's synthetic doesn't mean it's bad, but it's nice to know that you could actually get some benefits. Like caramel color, I thought was pretty harmless, actually. You'll see it in various products, but also, you know, in- including colas. Well, I was actually surfing around to try to find some clear cola 
because of some disturbing stuff I've been seeing about how caramel colors could uh, lead to stomach cancers and things like that. And I do have the, I drink the occasional diet pop, um, you know, and you, you do like to see that caramelized, that color being actually replaced by something like turmeric root or some combination of, they're using caramelized sugars. I'm not sure that would be ideal, <laughs> But anyway, replacing that caramel color, just like we might replace the, the wheat flour and, and whatnot. One thing I think is interesting is current products, many of them have emulsifiers like um, uh, carboxymethylcellulose, things that might actually emulsify and slightly break up and I don't want to say rinse away, but weaken the mucus lining in, in your gut and intestines and whatnot. And we don't really want that too much. So some of these things are being replaced by flaxseed. Uh, they say here chia. Tiger nut, I'm not even that familiar with tiger nut, but you could get the idea that they're, they're getting pronounceable, understandable natural food sources to try to replace some of these things that are in the uh, more processed foods. And then, of course, sugar being a current ingredient, its functionality being sweetness and texture. So they're really obviously very clever with that stuff. We talked about allulose recently. There's various low glycemic index sugars from like... Um, palm, coconut. Uh, there's chicory. Chicory is a great prebiotic to feed the bacteria in your gut. Uh, agave, uh, monk fruit, right? There's lots of different things. So I just thought this was an interesting piece here about original ingredients in the highly processed foods, their function, and then the alternatives we can expect coming down the road. Uh, they did have a little section in here called unintended consequences. And it says health is a driving factor for life, you know, healthy lifestyle diets, all that sort of thing, including vegetarian, vegan, plant-based diets, keto, they list. Um, then they say flavor drives the ultimate food and beverage purchasing decision. This is something that we talk about in the classroom. Taste and flavor are going to be number one when it comes to what you buy. Even health foods, we were talking the other week, if it tastes nasty, you're not going to get the protein powder, right? That kind of thing. Uh, Weirdly, it says uh, health, the knowledge of health, right, is driving consumers, though, toward different trends. So taste is number one, but they're also, it says uh, people are looking for alternatives to bread, meat, and dairy. Now, you may agree with that or disagree with that. Um, I personally think there's great things about dairy and about meat, but this article points out that, let's see, dairy-free is growing at 18% per year. Uh, Dairy-free. Meat substitutes are growing about 17% annually, and the plant-based marketplace shows no sign of slowing down. And I think uh, in the weightlifting rule world with sort of the, you know, the surge of carnivore and things like that, it's interesting to note that globally, worldwide, plant-based stuff is the general direction things are heading. Carnivore is bucking that trend, but uh, most people are actually moving toward uh, plant-based uh, diets. And of course, uh, just as a source, the data from that was from Innova Market Insights. So a little bit about clean labels as well. Uh, that's enough. We're going to go to break already. Uh, after break, again, I'm going to show you some clips, offer some clips from an academic lecture that I've given at different universities about eating disorders. It might help you identify uh, gym mates or friends who are in this sort of situation. Then we check in with Phil and I ask him specifically, uh, how much do you encounter this and in what form do you encounter eating disorders? Uh, I should make a final uh, caveat. 
Some of the information in the lecture has since been updated. There is a new diagnostic statistical manual that helps physicians diagnose eating disorders. And a lot of them are on a scale. So the diagnostic criteria that I will mention in this uh, this little academic lecture uh, is now on a scale. So if you don't meet these criteria, uh, they're still true for the most part, but they're sort of a scale. So for example, if a bulimic undergoes a binge purge cycle, not quite meeting the diagnostic criteria that I offer today, uh, they still might be on the scale. So that's what the new DSM-5 has done, is it's offered sort of a scale toward the, f- the frequency of how often some of these abnormal behaviors occur. So that's my caveat. Uh, let's go to break, and when we come back, again, a talk on eating disorders, and then a chat with Phil about them. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world And create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. 
Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, so eating disorders. First of all, they're a multidisciplinary problem. Uh, a dietitian cannot handle this by herself or himself. Uh, an exercise physiologist can't. The psychologist can't. It's a team uh, approach. And it's a very serious uh, matter, as we'll see. Uh, one type of eating disorder we'll touch on today is bulimia nervosa. Another one is anorexia nervosa. There's eating disorders not otherwise specified. That's literally what it's called in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM. Um, the DSM-5 just came out and made some sweeping changes, but EDNOS, eating disorders not otherwise specified. We're not going to cover those today. We've got enough to talk about with the diagnostic criteria for bulimia, anorexia, and then a big star here, of course, female athlete triad that we've already touched on a little bit. So first slide uh, on, ta- on specific disorders, bulimia nervosa, big star here. This is defined partly through the binge purge cycle. So what do we mean by a binge? Well, binges are something that um, the client or the patient in this case will do to re- relieve stress. Uh, eat large amounts of food, 3,000 or more calories at a time. We're going to put numbers on these things, right? The more we quantify things, the better. So 3,000 more calories, that's what a college man eats an entire day uh, in a massive binge done to relieve stress. Common binge foods are high-carb, high-fat foods, convenience foods like potato chips, uh, ho-hos, Twinkies, cakes, muffins, uh, those sorts of things, ice cream. Uh, as a bulimic gets more advanced, sometimes they'll purposely choose softer things that are easier to purge. Uh, or vomit up. We're going to see, however, though, that throwing up is not the only way that a bulimic patient will uh, purge after a binge. So uh, it takes one half to two hours. I won't have you memorize that necessarily. Just know in one sitting, basically 3,000 or more calories. So enormous amounts of food in a binge. And this is a key here toward the bottom of this uh, section of bulleted points. Uncontrollable. This is one of the things that separates uh, bulimia nervosa from anorexia nervosa, bulimic patients have a loss of control. They'll start eating and they can't stop. And by contrast, anorexics will have extreme control. It's actually a big issue with them. So anyway, uncontrollable as far as the binge. The purge can be laxatives or enemas. And these aren't very effective, actually. They act on the large intestines. Um, Nonetheless, the patients will use them thinking that they're purging the calories out of their bodies. Uh, But laxatives and enemas work on the large intestine. So 90% of the calories are absorbed in the small intestine, of course. You digest it in your stomach, and then it goes through the three stages of your small intestine where 90-plus percent of the calories are absorbed. So laxative and enema, it's it's a simple mistake. Um, as much as it is a psychological issue. Um, The next category for purging is vomiting. This is, in fact, one way that this is done. Uh, Even this is not completely effective. 33 to 75% of the calories are still absorbed 
Uh, obviously, they're going to induce uh, gag reflex, fingers down their throat, bite their knuckles. Um, some people who are purging, uh, who are bulimics, will use syrup of Ipecac. If you're not familiar with that, uh, it's a poison control uh, technique uh, that causes nausea and vomiting. It's not meant to be taken on a repeated basis. It's meant to, there are certain poisons you can throw up, some you can't, to get out of your system. Um, and over time, it can be toxic to the heart, liver, kidneys. So it's not meant for chronic use. Next slide here is a picture of eroded teeth. Um, one of the physical signs of bulimia nervosa is damage to the teeth. Uh, you can't have stomach acid with its pH of three, which is, you know, burn a hole through your carpet, super acidic, bathing the enamel of your teeth on a regular basis. The enamel of your teeth are very hard, but constant erosion because of that stomach acid. And so that's one of the things a doctor will quietly look at in a, a suspected bulimia case is do we see uh, teeth erosion? Also salivary gland infections. Because the salivary ducts enter the mouth, the acid, you know, that's always entering the mouth from the uh, vomiting can get into those glands and cause infections, damage. Uh, esophageal stomach uh, ruptures, uh, even cases where people can bleed to death. Uh, again, the esophagus is not meant to constantly endure uh, acid like that, stomach acids. Normally, your stomach houses that with, with its thick mucus lining. Also can happen in these patients is electrolyte imbalance. There is a, a potassium loss uh, when you vomit. You end up with an electrolyte imbalance and death can follow. Diuretics are another purging tool. That, obviously, that's about water loss, so you're not going to lose any calories that way. So again, it's sort of a simple mistake, but it's something that these patients will do. Uh, they also lose electrolytes because a lot of diuretics don't just cause water loss, but they'll cause uh, sodium potassium loss if they're a loop diuretic. Uh, exercise is a different way to purge. Uh, I actually knew an exercise bulimic person growing up, and she, um, I'll, I'll tell you the quick story. She spent, oh, geez, hour and a half, two hours on the treadmill at one gym, and that was back in the day before there were a 1,000 treadmills at the front of every gym, and people would complain, right? There was actually a sign-up sheet at the front, and people would say, come on, get off the treadmill. What are you doing? You know, aren't you done? Uh, so she got a second gym membership, and then she would go do a stepper or something else for about two hours at lunchtime, and then she would come to my gym in the evening and lift with us. So you can see that that's, that's not a healthy outlook. That's excessive, and importantly, she was doing it as a self-punitive or self-punishing kind of thing. Uh, she would use exercise to purge, uh, you know, sort of punish herself. So um, it's done, again... If we over, look at the overall characteristics, this condition is done. The binge relieves stress. They are aware of the problem. I mean, how can you not be if you're purposely purging in different ways? They're secretive about the problem. And the story I just told you illustrates that, doesn't it? Uh, so shame and depression follow the binge. And then uh, also, as I noted, they may be normal weight. In fact, they're likely to be normal weight. People who are bulimics, because they don't get rid of the calories as they think they are, they often um, are normal weight for height. Their body mass index is, is fairly normal. So what's the diagnostic criteria? Two or more binge purge cycles per week. So if someone has a 3,000 calorie binge and then they go purge with whether it's vomiting or exercise or what have you, 
If they do it once a week, they don't meet their criteria. So they're not diagnosed with bulimia nervosa. But if they have two or more binge purge cycles in a week, that's one of the criteria. Two, this has to continue for at least three months. So if they do two binge purge cycles this week and next week, but they don't go on for three months doing it, again, they're not bulimic. Three, uncontrollable eating during the binge. Again, that loss of control. All these different kinds of purging that's listed here again, vomiting, laxatives, diuretics, um, vigorous, frequent, prolonged exercise, things that are self-punitive because they have a sense of guilt about the binge. And also persistent over-concern with body shape and weight. So body image distortion in some way. So we see someone with, um, you know, anxiety, so they binge to relieve the anxiety. It could be from social events. It could be body image stress. So they binge, but then they have a fear of fat gain because they just ate 3,000 or more calories at a sitting. So then they purge with these different methods. And then there's a loss of fear of fat gain because they've purged in some way. Even if it's ineffective, they lose that fear. They think it's effective. But then they have a sense of guilt that they just did this purge. Uh, and that leads to anxiety and more binging, and you can see it becomes a vicious circle. So the next one, anorexia nervosa. This is food refusal. It's starvation. Weight is unacceptably low, and body mass index is less than 18.5. If you remember, we said BMI in the low 20s is healthy. Um, this is too low. This is not enough meat on your bones for your height. Um, it's a serious condition. Seven in 100 of these patients die within 10 years. Uh, how do they die? Suicide, heart failure, and infections. Because one of the things that happens here is these patients end up with almost like quashiorcor, like you see in developing countries with um, starving children. They don't get enough protein. Their immune systems fail. And you can start to see immune system failure along with these other problems uh, in anorexic patients. About 25% recover, about 70% remain anorexic or have other disorders. So it's almost like alcoholism that once someone is an alcoholic, they always have to sort of manage some of those um, mental urges uh, and it's a similar situation here. Now, what are some of the classic characteristics? These are not the diagnostic criteria, but these are classic characteristics of anorexia nervosa, white females, only about 10% of anorexics are men, are male. I have known one male anorexia nervosa patient. He was the son of a dietitian. Um, middle and upper socioeconomic class. Perfectionist, competitive, obsessive personality. Parental standards may be very high. Critical of themselves and others. So very judgmental. And then this is where things really fall apart as far as, uh, I think, it, from a physiology perspective, a basic mistake. And that is they believe food avoidance is achievement. Now, we have to think about this. I mean, that might give them a sense of control in life. But believing that food is bad, we need food to survive. Our tissues are built from it. Uh, it'd be like saying oxygen is bad and I'm going to hold my breath. Well, how long is that going to last? It's not, it, it's going to be bad in the end. So it's the same thing here. You cannot make food the enemy. Um, so they refuse to accept the problem exists. So unlike a bulimic person who's aware of the problem, 
they refuse to accept it, it exists. They resist treatment. They equate goodness with low food intake. It makes it very hard uh, to treat them. I've heard stories about where uh, when they were in inpatient settings trying to get them to eat, you know, even if it's just a couple of um, saltine crackers and they'll take the cracker and crumble it up and sprinkle it on the floor or put it in their pocket, um, they'll compete with the treatment person because, you know, that's their nature. When does this frequently occur? Stressful life and social situations and they become acutely aware of their body image, for example. Um, anorexics are obsessed with food. Uh, even if they don't eat it, they'll cook for others, think about food. Um, they might be hungry, but they're going to refuse to eat, of course. Uh, they'll undertake little food rituals, like cut food into small pieces, rearrange it on the plate, prepare food for other people. Um, and it's important that they eliminate food gradually. It's not like uh, someone with anorexia nervosa wakes up one day and says, I think I'll stop eating. Uh, they don't do that. It starts off with restriction that gets more and more severe. It's sort of a slippery slope. Eventually, they can get all the way down to just three to 600 calories per day. Imagine. And you'll see common foods that they'll use as they start to learn that there's no calories in them, like diet pop, sugarless gum, those sorts of things. But three to 600 calories a day, that is a snack all day long. Mostly, these persons are about competitive, perfectionist avoidance of food. Food is the enemy. Anybody trying to treat them to get them to eat is sort of, you know, a competitor. Uh, and that can be a real problem. Um, here are the diagnostic criteria. How does a physician make the call? One, body weight less than 85% of standard. So we know how to do ideal body weight using the Hamwe equation. For women, it's 100 pounds at five feet in height plus uh, five pounds per additional inch. Um, for men, it's 106 pounds at five feet in height and six pounds per additional inch. Um, so if you're less than 85% of that IBW number, that is one of the diagnostic criteria. Another thing on our starred list, intense fear of weight or fat gain, distorted body image. And then here's some more numbers for you. Women must miss three consecutive periods. So if they don't have a th three months in a row, they don't have a period that is diagnostic criteria. If they don't have one period, but then it returns, that's not diagnostic criteria, criteria for anorexia nervosa. So those are the four important diagnostic criteria here. Uh, physical consequences. What do we see? Uh, what are the signs and symptoms? Low body temperature and cold intolerance. Well, that's not surprising. Remember the restriction contradiction we talked about is when you don't eat, your metabolism slows way down. So that would, in fact, worsen this situation with the uh, cold intolerance and low body temp. Uh, Lanugo hair. This is very fine body hairs, presumably as an attempt for the body to protect itself from cold. Lower metabolism, low thyroid hormone, decreased heart rate. You can see how all these things go together. Fatigue and fainting. Dry skin and hair. This could be from vitamin or essential fatty acid deficiencies. Hair loss, iron deficiency anemia. So if you're not eating, you're not eating enough iron. Increased infections as the immune system starts to fail. Uh, gastrointestinal problems, GI problems, um, meaning bloating, abnormal fullness after eating. When they do eat, it's important to understand that the gastrointestinal tract is a lot like skeletal muscle. It's a use it or lose it organ system. And if you don't use it, 
it doesn't work very well. In fact, with um, I mentioned Quashiorcor, which is uh, starvation protein uh, starvation in kids in developing countries. You can't just start feeding them, you know, here's a Big Mac, you'll be okay. They won't be able to do that. You have to almost start them back on a protein broth and very gently coax their um, digestive tract back to life, if you will, back to, um, you know, functioning. Uh, It'd sort of be like asking someone who doesn't lift, you know, here's a 300-pound bench press, go for it. Well, that's not going to work. So anyway, so the GI tract is a use-it-or-lose-it sort of organ. Um, bloating, constipation, digestive enzymes are low. When you don't eat protein, that's one of the things that happens is you can't make your own enzymes. Remember, enzymes are uh, proteins that your body needs. They're you protein. Um, and you can't make them because you don't have the building blocks. And like we said, electrolyte imbalances are common um, in this situation as well. Um, not only may they have low potassium intake, but then if there is any kind of vomiting or diuretic use out of this group, that would just worsen the potassium losses. Eating disorders in general, how do you treat these? One, individual counseling. You need a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a family therapist, like a licensed counselor, um, to help with the emotional trauma. Uh, that story I told you about the exercise bulimic friend of mine, I really hoped that at the time I was in school, she was just a friend, it was all you know very informal, but I thought if I could just show her you know, how to eat well and lift properly as I was learning it, then maybe it would help her. Uh, but her problems were emotional. They weren't, it, well, it's not about the food. It wasn't about the food. The food was the expression of a deeper psychological problem uh, that probably stemmed from her childhood. So the point being is you need to treat the emotional uh, stress and illness. Having said that, you need medical supervision, of course, from an MD or a DO, a real physician. Um, nutrition intervention from the RD, and exercise intervention from the exercise physiologist. And I don't just mean a personal trainer. So you can see here that there are five different people in this treatment team uh, to help this. It's very multi-factorial, uh, and so it requires a whole treatment team. And this is how it's usually done in a hospital or different university treatment centers. Uh, this is actually from the DSM-4, I believe. Not, like I said, now the DSM-5 is out. That's what counselors and psychologists use to diagnose mental disorders. Some of the symptoms overlap. In fact, there are people with anorexia that have other symptoms of bulimia, uh, like vomiting and purging. Some people with bulimia will progress to anorexia. So there is that gray area in the middle where there are things like anemia, low white blood cell count. That's your immune system, of course. Um you know, electrolyte imbalances, etc. So these conditions do overlap. Data on the issue. This is from Giordano, uh, Medical Ethics 2005. It says, the presence of anorexics in exercise classes is becoming increasingly sensitive issue for instructors and fitness professionals. Well, this is where, of course, it becomes a problem um, if exercise is one of the central features of anorexia and they often appear in classes, you know, you could see where having a qualified university trained exercise physiologist could be very helpful instead of someone w- that just has a weekend certificate and might not identify this person or what, what have you. I've actually heard coaches talk to people uh, who definitely had de- eating disorders, they had signs and symptoms, um, plop down the person in front of them and say, what eating disorder you got? Well, aside from the poor grammar, that's a terrible thing to say. Uh, <laughs> this is a sensitive issue. Um, 
and you could actually send them, you know, spiraling into worse behaviors. So we have to be very careful here. Uh, there are strong ethical reasons to let anorexics participate in exercise classes. However, this paper also explains why, despite these cogent ethical reasons, there's no moral obligation to allow them to participate. So, it, in other words, it's it's a struggle. Uh, you can't say, well, you're an anorexic person, you can't participate here. But at the same time, it, it should be a positive and you know, maybe even a treatment-type experience Um and it's ethically uh, difficult to tease apart. Okay, so our last one that we're going to touch on is the female athlete triad. Uh, three components to this, as we've said before, eating disordered, lack of menstrual periods, and osteoporosis. When we say eating disorder, we basically mean a large negative energy balance. Uh, there's a very similar component to the female athlete triad where it's not so much disordered eating, but they simply can't eat enough to cover their training demands like some gymnasts. Um, however, these are the three diagnostic criteria. They can have bones like a 60-year-old. This is not good. You put them in a DEXA scanner, and this is very bad. You only lay down bone density into your late 20s, maybe age 30. Then you mostly live off what you've got. So starting life with uh, the bones of your grandmother is not a good idea. Uh, it's caused by low estrogen. That's why the menstrual cycle goes away. Often irreversible, a lot of this damage. Um, and an early warning sign is stress fractures. Uh, in fact, the coach that I mentioned before um, he was a repeat offender in a lot of ways. Um, he would announce to the team, I'm going to have your, quote, fat arses on the scale, unquote, every week. And then he would also um, tell them that stress fractures were a normal part of training. Well, no, no, they're not. Stress fractures are not a normal part of training. You're doing untold damage to these athletes. Now, he was um, a champion track coach for years, so you have to be very careful here. Uh, you know, because it's hard to uh, change things when you're, you're bringing home the trophies. Anyway, um, okay, a few more notes here about eating disorders in sport. Potentially at risk for eating disorders in general, gymnasts, rowers, potentially, dancers. We can't forget dancers as athletes, very athletic in what they do, and uh, high risk for eating disorders. Track and cross-country athletes. Most of the women I've seen are actually track and cross-country, weight class sports, wrestling, judo. Um, you could think of any number of them. Uh, bodybuilding and fitness competitors who try to get their body fat extraordinarily low. Um, powerlifting, maybe. Um, these guys, um, they're very disordered in their eating, but I don't think they would fall into anorexia or uh, bulimia nervosa. Uh, for example, powerlifters will sometimes lose, and I'm not kidding, 30 or 40 pounds over just a day or two with dehydration. They'll get on the scale in a weight class, and then they'll blow back up to their almost to their original body weight. Um, it's sort of scary because sometimes you'll see them afterwards. I've seen bodybuilders do this too a bit. They're almost bluish. They're cyanotic. Um, they're on the verge of fluid overload heart failure, and they don't even know it. Um, so just the water balance stuff can be scary. Um, an unwise weight gain or weight loss is not always tied to strong emotional problems. I think we need to make a note of that or body image issues. So just make a note that there are forms of disordered eating that are not tied to body image issues or emotional problems. 
And that's it for eating disorders. Okay, so everybody, we have done a little tour, sort of the academic version of what eating disorders are. Um, so my question's for Phil, who's on the road, and we're just going to get what we can here. Um, have you ever seen even unspecified types of eating disorders in powerlifting? Like, do they even exist like you might think they would in physique or figure? Yeah, I think it's different, though. But, I mean, I, you dealt with the classical – you deal with the classical stuff, bulimia, anorexia. I've dealt with that with clients. Um, I don't think that's tied to the sport, though. That's something they had pre-existing um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. before they came into it. But, um, yeah, I mean, definitely. You deal with people uh, that eat a ton, and they, they have to, and like bigorexia type stuff. Right. There's a lot of that in mm -hmm. uh, in powerlifting. You know, I mean, I know that dealing with uh, some, some of my friends who've, like, retired, and they, they have a problem now being smaller than they were. And things like that. Yes. Um, so you definitely have that. And then now I think you're seeing it more now than it was like when I started. Like nobody knew what the hell a Wilkes was. And nobody cared what anything was. It was all about your total. But now there's a big push for weight class things. And uh, mm. you're seeing a lot of people stay in lower weight classes. Anytime you have a weight class sport, of course, you're going to have eating disorders from cutting weight to just trying to stay in that weight class. Um to you know just meticulously counting macros and things like that you can't exist like i can't go out to eat because i can't get my exact macros and you know things like that oh right so, yeah i get it so. like the wilkes thing yeah because that if you get weight class stuff coming into this like i had a friend in high school he was a wrestler and he did not have bulimia like he didn't meet the diagnostic criteria for it yeah. but late in prep like for the state championships and stuff We'd go to buffets, and he would wipe it out, and then he would throw it up. And I'd be like, wow, you just threw that up. And he's like, yeah, you know, I just – it's just, you know – he was so matter-of-fact. Like, I just had to get rid of it. And yeah. it only – he only did that for a little while. He had no body image distortion. There was no bigorexia or, you know, other types yeah. of fear of fat gain. And when the season was over, he went back to being – you know, a, a fairly a normal, you know, healthy eater. And so yeah. that w was it disordered? Yes. Was it bulimia? Yes. No, it just didn't meet the criteria. Right. So that's kind of what I'm thinking might happen sometimes with powerlifting. You know what I mean? Where it's a little bit less worrisome as far as, you know, fear of fat gain, maybe. But it's yeah. but it's just a practical, practical thing that you got to make your weight class. So, yeah, it's definitely tied into that. It's tied into a weight class, and I think it's problematic that where – I think like wrestling, people get tied to this lower weight class for too long from what I've seen, and they could actually do better if they went up. But they're just – for some reason, they're vested in this lightweight class. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I see them hang around there too long, and then when they finally go up three, four years later, they make all this progress and then realize that, holy shit, I just wasted four years. You know, yeah. if I'd have went up four years ago, I could have made these strength gains and been somewhere, you know? So, um, yeah, you see a lot of that. So. Yep. Well, now what about you yourself? Because you started more physique oriented in that kind of stuff before you, you know, became a big bearded powerlifter. Yeah. So, uh, maybe talk a little bit about like how you look at things then. Would you consider any of that unspecified eating or even diagnosable well, eating disorder or 
I think moving to strength sports saved me. I think anybody that gets into bodybuilding and uh, that type of physique, the training for physique meticulously, and uh, yeah, it leads to it can very easily lead to eating disorders. Yeah, um, yeah. Like you're tracking everything down to the exact gram on every day, and uh, you, you know you're limiting your carbs, and then you start becoming afraid of carbs. You get afraid of you literally start. Labeling food is evil. Like there's good and there's bad. Yeah. And if you touch the bad, like you, you, there's an emotional response there. And that's not good in my opinion. I mean, right. I don't think there's good and bad foods except for like, like you can't make an argument that trans fats are good for you. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, like a donut every now and again isn't going to kill you. Yeah. You know, it's not bad. It's bad if you have them in mass quantities all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely was was headed that way and i think moving to strength sports uh gave me something else to shoot for and i didn't have to worry about food so much and i just you know i learned a lot from that past and i was like like i can i can just hand pick out portion sizes and i know what good food is and i know what uh, you know wholesome food is compared to before compared to your average person walking on the streets so i'm able to use that and i know when i'm eating like an asshole uh, right yeah <laughs> Yeah, I do it on purpose now. Mm-hmm. There's times for that. So uh, I'd say I have less now, but yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Like when I'm eating up, that's verging on a disorder. Yeah, I mean I'm literally cramming in food whenever I can, and I'm looking for things that are dense in calories. I don't care what's in them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Look for calorie dense foods, um, and eating all the time. Like okay, every time you walk past the fridge, you got to grab something. Um, you know, the, this last meet, I mean, it got to the point where I would not drink water because yeah. it didn't have any calories. Yeah. 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 So I was looking for calorie containing beverages even. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's verging on a disorder, but then once the meat's over, I'm done. Right. So, and I go right back to eating normal. Yeah. That reminds me of, you know, the wrestler story, right? Like you're back to, so that suggests that it's not. It doesn't meet some of the, the classical eating disorder criteria, but yeah, that's disordered. When you're cramming three thousand calories in a meal when you're not yeah. hungry, that's a little weird, yeah. right? That's a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we should probably get get a psych person on here to you know really delve into this <laughs> stuff. But um, I like what you're what you're suggesting too. I feel like a lot of people eating disordered or not, if they're too worried about their body image or too much fear of fat. Strength sports give you a different goal. It's a similar but different goal. Yep. You know, just, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's all about what you can do. So, and that's very positive. I mean, it can be. Uh, Yeah. Because, I mean, the the physique sports can be very defeating and mentally hard. I mean, because it's hard to gauge progress even from week to week, month to month. Because, I mean, you know, it takes months to show any real progress usually. Oh, yeah. Uh, whereas you can see it all the time, like okay, five more pounds on the bar, one more rep. You know, this it's easy. Right. To, it's it's easier to swallow this progress and engage it. So right, the the feedback comes more readily. Yeah, yeah. So, no, that's true. Um, I, one of the things, and you you've heard me bitch about this, and longtime listeners probably too. But um, the last round of competing I did, I came down from all, all right around two thirty, just under two thirty, and I was like in the mid one nineties. You know. And I mean, I've got striated quads and stuff, but 
I couldn't get striations in my glutes. Now, some people yeah. will be like, God, that's ridiculous, man. You know, but I have a feeling, and I think this is, this is my bias, but I think this is even more true in the natural bodybuilding is the harsh, harsh dieting becomes a bigger deal than even the muscle mass. Because you can only build so much mass when you're natural. I mean, by comparison to sort of the Dorian Yates of the world. Yeah. You know, but when I had a coach tell me, or a, a judge tell me afterwards, I was asking, you know, like, what could I do to be better? He goes, well, you know, you look like you're you know, maybe three weeks out. And I'm thinking, I'm standing here shaking. <laughs> I'm 4% yeah. fat. F you. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, at one point, yes, I was, in fact planning to do one more show a couple of weeks later but you know to be that lean and have somebody say you know you're just um you're ridiculously ripped by any standards but like first place bodybuilding competitive standards we want to see you know i don't care if you lose another inch off your arms i want to see striations in those glutes you know and you're like okay you know i'm done with you then right because and how how does that not lead to some kind of body image distortion, right? Because no matter how good you are, it's not good enough. You know, you're not yeah, you ripped enough. A lot in the physique sports. I mean, and then you get people that are trying to stay almost stage ready year round. And oh, true. You see it a lot in your figure model competitors and stuff like that. And well, you've talked about it with bodybuilders. And then what does that do? It demands them to be on high doses of anabolics all the time. Yep. <laughs> there's never an off season. So yeah, there's no uh, yeah. The cycles go out the window. And they're yes. always on, and it's often like the stuff that just yeah, those a lot of those just finishing meds, yeah, yeah. So, yep, and that's a whole nother disorder in and of itself. But uh, well, so you know. one last follow up, but before I let you go, because I know you're on the road here, um, what percentage do you think of your people are would deal with either anorexia nervosa or bulimia or female athlete triad? You know, because they've gotten they they train so much or they're so lean they lose their period. Could could you put a percentage on it of the people that you've uh, encountered? It's low. It's low. Yeah. Like the people that I deal with, maybe if it was five percent, I'd be I'd be amazed. It's not that many. Okay, one in twenty. Then yeah, yeah, not a lot. So. Yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting for me to hear because when I worked at a university as the sports nutritionist, uh, I would guess maybe fifteen percent. You know, because you do have certain, um, like especially like track athletes sometimes or or cross country because they if they have a coach telling them. Way less, way less. I don't care. You have to weigh yeah. less. You know, there is some of that going on. But even then, yeah, 15, I don't know even know if I would say 20%. But it's so funny sometimes because you'll read certain textbooks and they'll make it sound like 60% of all gymnasts are, you know, uh, can be diagnosed with. I was going to say, most of the ones I encounter were ex-gymnasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Uh, they are pushed to be small, like really small. Yeah. So dancers too. You know, dance yep. is very intense training. I, I think people need to realize that. Um, you know, so yeah, there's um, there's a lot of demands on those sorts of things. But yeah, again, so the the attempt today was just to kind of check in with you know facility owner and be like, well, how much of this do you see, and how what form does it take because of that. That unspecified category, we used to call it EDNOS, eating disorder not otherwise specified. Uh, The new DSM um, suggests, I I think they use the term unspecified, but yeah, because it does kind of take different forms in different people. It it doesn't look the same in everybody as far as the amount of fear of fat gain versus, you know, some of the other behaviors they might be doing, like whether it's abusing laxatives and diuretics, which... 
is sort of misguided because by, you know, in those cases, you're not really dumping the calories. You're just weighing less because you're losing fluids, you know, and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So. Okay. Well, thanks, man. I know you're doing your thing. So, yeah, I'm well, hoping to see everybody at the Arnold. I know we're going to be, I'll announce times on the Facebook page, but I know we're going to be at the Hate Brand booth and the JB Boss booth and probably some other places. So, yeah, that's going to be let fun. You know. Absolutely. Hi right, guys, thanks. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.